Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. In the last two episodes, we had a little bit different format where I was reading in a large part while commenting on the topic, which was the topic of social contract theory and how Bitcoin appears to be the perfect implementation of the social contract. Now, social contract theory developed over time as a way to address the challenges of living together in society in a way that is free from oppression and that ultimately grants individual freedoms to the greatest degree possible without people infringing on the freedoms of others. In other words, in a certain sense, it's the pursuit of the ideal form of social government. And this is particularly relevant in biblical terms because the entire conflict between good and evil arose out of this question of what would be or what is the ideal form of government. It started with Lucifer in heaven as an archangel questioning and challenging the nature of God's government. And Lucifer's challenge was twofold. On the one hand, he accused God of demanding more from his creatures, more in terms of service, than what he himself was willing to give. In effect, he accused God of being above the law, as having a law for the inhabitants of the realms of his kingdom, which he expected them to obey, but which he was not willing to condescend to himself. And secondly, Satan accused God of having a law that was too difficult for created beings to uphold and obey. And Lucifer presenting his case as an effort to improve the lives of the created beings throughout the universe, proposed an alternative form of government of perfect freedom, freedom to do whatever you want, free from the restrictions of God's law. And under the assumption that creatures are basically good by nature and would not do something harmful to others, and that created beings have the ability to discern what is good, not only for themselves, but also for those around them. This seemed like a good plan, and Lucifer won half of the angels to his idea. Now, God was not taken off guard by this. He had planned, together with his son, Jesus Christ, in his original spiritual form, he had decided, together with his son, that they would create planet Earth and the human race 
and that ultimately the Son of God would be responsible for the salvation of the human race if they should fall in disobedience to the government and authority of God. Well, Lucifer was not invited to this council meeting, and he was not allowed to participate in the planning of this world, for perhaps obvious reasons in retrospect. But this fueled his rebellion, and ultimately the conflict between the two sides in heaven, the half that remained loyal to God and the half that followed Lucifer, this conflict became so strong that God had to convene a meeting of the entire universe and affirm the authority that was invested in his son. And ultimately, as a result of this meeting, some of the angels that had followed Lucifer repented and turned back to God, so that in the end, only one-third of the angels remained on the side of Lucifer, and two-thirds remained with God. And ultimately, the one-third that remained with Lucifer were cast out of heaven with him. And in this way, the court of heaven isolated the loyal universe from the disloyal universe in order to allow things to proceed in a civilized way, so to speak, in the heavenly realms, while this court case was working out. The earth and mankind became the proving ground or the sandbox or the quarantine station where the universe could observe the outworking of Lucifer's proposed government without risking the permanent effects on the entire universe itself. And we as human beings have been witness to the outworking of Lucifer's law of do as thou wilt, insofar as we have observed human nature as it has unfolded through the generations. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were neutral, and insofar as their only contact was with God, that neutrality fostered obedience. However, when the influence of the serpent came into the picture, which was Lucifer incarnate in the flesh of that serpent, coming to bring wisdom and success purportedly to Eve through the forbidden fruit, at that point, after the fall, the nature of Adam and Eve ceased to be neutral and their obedience to God was replaced with a natural tendency to do as they please, which was, in effect, the law that Lucifer had proposed as the perfect law for created beings. Well, Adam and Eve repented and they determined to follow God despite having succumbed to the corruption of their nature. And they worked hard to overcome that. And through faith in God's promises, they lived to the best of their ability in pursuit of a restoration of their relationship with God. 
and for the repentant all through the ages, that has been the aim, is to reach restoration of that broken relationship between man and God. On the other side, however, are those who embrace the teachings of the serpent, who embrace the idea of perfect freedom to do whatever one pleases. This is, in essence, the fallen human nature that all of us have inherited from Adam and Eve. And it is not without effort that we, on an individual basis, must choose to believe God, to believe in the possibility of restoration to harmony with God, and to believe that God's way of government and the restrictions of his law are actually in our best interest, not only as created beings as a whole, but also individually. And so, through faith in God's promises that this restoration is possible, people of God all through the generations have been living in a way according to that faith. In the very beginning, that faith was expressed as belief in the very words of God who promised to Adam and Eve to ultimately give them the victory over the serpent insofar as he promised to Eve that her seed would crush the head of that serpent. This was a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ, a promise of salvation that they could hold on to and trust in and live in hope of. And this is the faith that grew all through the early generations of the children of Adam, all the way to the time of Noah. And there we had a whole new set of promises that were building upon the foundation that had already been laid through the years before, but which manifested in a greater form through the covenant that God made with Noah. And from that time, this faith kept growing, this faith in the hope of salvation, the hope of restoration and redemption from the sinful, corrupt nature, the selfish nature. And again, in the time of Abraham, God expanded and clarified his promises even further. And this continued through the lives of Isaac and Jacob. And then in the time of Moses, it was clarified and expanded even further. And as people grew in number, the definition of God's promises expanded and the detail in terms of the laws and so forth increased in order to accommodate the need of, at that point, a whole nation of people living together in harmony in pursuit of a holy life in the sight of God. Ultimately, when Christ came as the Redeemer in fulfillment of many aspects of God's promises, humanity and the onlooking universe experienced a whole new understanding of God's law, of God's character, and of the issues that were being addressed in the heavenly court 
in relation to Lucifer's accusations. In particular, Jesus, being by identity the Son of God, humbled himself to become human in nature, and in so doing, walking here among us as a man, he refuted the first of Satan's claims in the heavenly courtroom. He refuted the idea that God was not willing to abide by his own law, or to put it in the other phrasing, that God demanded more of his subjects than what he was willing to give himself. Jesus Christ refuted that claim, that accusation against the character of God, by demonstrating his willingness to humble himself as a man and to ultimately submit to all that God requires of humanity. His obedience to God, even to the point of sacrificing his life, giving himself as a willing sacrifice, showed that God, insofar as Jesus was the Son of God and reflects the very character of God Almighty, Jesus showed that God was every bit as willing and as loving to demonstrate, to give his entire service to his created beings, just as much as he asks his created beings to give their entire service to him, their full loyalty and obedience. When Jesus died on the cross, the entire universe saw that Satan's accusation against God in the heavenly courts, that God required more of his created beings than he was himself willing to give, was false. The question remained for the court to address, however, whether or not Lucifer's second claim was valid, that God's law was too high, too difficult for created beings to keep. This is something that, although Jesus showed in his own life as a man, it remained, or we might say remains, to be seen whether mankind or any other created beings whose identity and character is not that of the Son of God himself can also keep the law of God. Now, one could hypothetically go back to the condition of Adam and Eve before the fall as an example of created beings who keep the law of God. One could also look to the half of the angels who never fell as an example of created beings who do keep the law of God without fault. And in a certain sense, this brings us to understand that Satan's or Lucifer's accusation in the beginning was obviously not directed so much at the status quo, because at that time, everybody did live in obedience to God's law. And it would be nonsensical for him to accuse God of having a law which is too 
difficult for created beings to keep if obviously the created beings were up to that time entirely keeping the law of God. There must have been something else that Lucifer was driving at with that accusation. And indeed there was. The point behind this accusation was ultimately accusing God of being unfairly gracious. Now, I find this very interesting. Satan and the third of the angels who followed him were cast out of heaven. And at that point, there was not given them any possibility to come back. There was a time before they were cast out where they could have repented and turned back. And indeed, some of the angels did. But once they were cast out, there was no further possibility. At that point, the judgment that had commenced had to play out and reach its final conclusion. Essentially, God, in demonstrating his authority and in affirming that authority in his Son in front of the entire heavenly universe, if that was not sufficient to effect humility in the heart of Lucifer and those who followed him, what more could be done to reach their hearts? And this is where Lucifer's accusation comes into play, because Lucifer, in essence, was accusing God of being unfair with his grace. So Lucifer, essentially wanting to be permitted to live his theory of do as thou wilt, wanting to be permitted to live in freedom from God's law, accused God of having a law too difficult to keep. Now, when the earth was created and Adam and Eve were created, Lucifer, or Satan in the form of the serpent, sought to win them to his side and did so through the temptation of Eve. And in so doing, he thought to put God between a rock and a hard place, so to speak, in that if God, because of his love for mankind and because of the investment that Christ had made in creating this world, if God would pardon the sin of mankind and allow Adam and Eve to live, then he would also be obliged to pardon and allow Lucifer to continue as well. And this would essentially be an admission on the part of God that his law was too high, too difficult to be kept by created beings. But again, I come to this interesting point that many other created beings are continually and have always been obeying the laws of God. So what is it that Satan was really driving at? Ultimately, it was about this case of if one ever falls from the law of God, from the standard of his law, there can be no turning back. That is what was too difficult, too stringent in Lucifer's concept. And essentially, it was a very self-interested 
point of view, because as one who himself was the first to instigate rebellion against God, he was the first to fall from the law of God. The seed of going in the wrong direction started with him. And therefore, the accusation that God's law is too difficult to be kept by created beings was a justification for his own failure. And he sought to use humanity's failure, the failure of Adam and Eve, as proof of his case. And he reasoned that if God would bend the rules for Adam and Eve, then he would also be obliged to bend the rules for Lucifer and all the fallen angels. What he didn't count on, though, is that if humanity could demonstrate the opposite, if humanity could demonstrate their ability to keep the law of God through faith, through the power of God, through the power of Jesus Christ, through an understanding of God's character as demonstrated by Jesus Christ through his sacrifice on the cross, all that Christianity entails. If mankind could demonstrate that it is possible for created beings to keep the law of God, even beings who possessed a fallen nature already, if they, through the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, could keep the law of God, that would refute Satan's accusation that the law of God was too difficult to be kept, and it would remove any justification for remaining in a fallen or rebellious condition. In other words, it would completely destroy Lucifer's premise that the best law would be the law, do as thou wilt. So, in summary, to refute Lucifer's two claims, first, that God expects more of his created beings than he is willing to give himself, and secondly, that his law is too difficult for created beings to keep. Christ refuted the first part, but it devolves upon created beings, humans, to refute the second claim. And that's why it's so important to take Christianity seriously and not just accept this false form of Christianity that says, oh, Jesus paid the price for my sins on the cross, and I have nothing to do. I'm living under grace, and it doesn't matter if I sin or what I do in my life, because it's all covered by Jesus on the cross. No, that's, in a sense, living the law of Lucifer. Do as thou wilt, because God is obliged to have mercy anyway, because ultimately no, nobody can keep his law. And sadly, that is the opinion of many Christians, many people who call themselves Christians. But Jesus came, became a man to overcome sin in the flesh, partly to give us the example of overcoming and to show us that even in the flesh, even in the fallen nature, it is possible to keep the law of God. And by his infinite condescension, when we truly understand what he gave for our redemption, 
It should inspire us to live with the same faith that he lived with. It should inspire us to overcome in the same ways that he overcame all things. He came to save us from sin, from our sins, not to save us in sin. Now, the reason I review this whole history of the great controversy and what our responsibilities are as human beings is because I want to tie this together with what we studied in the last two weeks in relation to social contract theory. Social contract theory, in essence, is the pursuit of the ideal governmental structure that will allow people to live in harmony with the maximum amount of freedom possible. In essence, you could say it's a pursuit of what should the kingdom of God be like. Or you could say it's simply a seeking after a knowledge of what God's ideal government is like. Now, it's interesting to note that God's government is changing over time. It's developing. In some aspects, God never changes, and there was nothing wrong with his government in the beginning. But in some aspects, it is developing and changing, and we are gaining more insights into his government as the great controversy unfolds. Ultimately, God desires, and I think all good people desire, that the universe is free from wickedness, that it's free from evil, free from everything bad. And ultimately, God promises in the Bible to destroy all the bad things from this world and ultimately from the universe. And those things that are bad are to be destroyed in such a way that they will never exist again. This was the example of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were burned with an eternal fire, hell fire. That is to say, a fire whose consequences are eternal. Sodom and Gomorrah are not still burning today, but they are still annihilated. There is nobody living where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood. That is an illustration for how God will ultimately destroy all things that are bad. They simply won't exist again. But in order for that to be the case, his government must develop in such a way that that will be ensured. And essentially, that is what the great controversy is about. It's about judging this court case that Lucifer brought before the heavenly courts. And through this judgment, it will be determined which government, whether that of God or that of Lucifer, is the superior one. And through the findings of this judgment, our understanding of God's kingdom, of his government, is increasing. It's developing. And that's not to say there was ever anything wrong with the kingdom of God, but it is to say that his kingdom is growing and developing on its existing foundation, 
but in ways that have never been seen before by the universe. In a certain way, that's what we are discovering as humans in our process of discovery through this idea of the social contract. Essentially, what a social contract is, what that means, is that it's a common contract, a common agreement made between all of those in a society. So everyone in a society agrees to the conditions of the contract. And in this manner, it is believed by proponents of the social contract theory, logically, that everyone, because they have subscribed to these rules, will live and abide by the conditions of the contract and therefore live in harmony. Now, those who follow the way of Lucifer say, no, 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 I don't want any contract. I don't want any restrictions. I just want to be free to live however I want. And I won't kill anybody. I won't do anything bad, but I just want to be free to live however I want without any restrictions. And on the surface, this sounds good. This libertarian ideal sounds good, but in practice, it falls short because of the simple reason that human nature tends toward evil. Human nature is naturally self-interested, and it is simply the case that other people do not necessarily consider the same things to be good as I might, or as you might. What another person thinks is good, even good for me, is not necessarily what I think is good for me. And you might have a different idea of what is good, and you don't want others to act in ways that are going to violate what you consider to be good. And so we naturally, because we have different ideas, because we have different values, even if those values are not necessarily bad in themselves, they are different. And this results in conflict, ultimately if there is no common denominator, if there is no common contract or agreement that we all agree to abide by. We need some common understanding of what is good, and that's always what the law is for. It's to provide that common ground, and then we must hold ourselves to be restricted. We must restrict ourselves. We must have self-control to abide by the conditions of that law. And so, to close that point, those who follow the ways of Lucifer ultimately become perfect libertarians in a certain sense because they want nothing to do with laws and they want perfect freedom. And ultimately, that leads to a world where the strongest reigns and oppresses all those under him. That's the example we see in the animal kingdom, for example. The strongest reigns and all the others take cover or, um, you know, are dominated ultimately by the strongest. That is not how the kingdom of God works. And that is not, as it says, for example, in the New Testament, God gives grace to the humble, he strengthens the weak, and so forth. God's kingdom is not a top-to-bottom kingdom or a bottom-to-top kingdom in a unidirectional sense like the kingdom of Satan, it is a reciprocal kingdom. That is to say, it's this 
idea that Jesus conveyed when he said, for example, that he who is least in the kingdom of God is greatest and so forth. It's this, if we would express it in economic terms, it's this cyclical or revolving economy, circular economy. God's kingdom is a circular kingdom in a certain sense, which can be seen very clearly in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. God, though he is greatest and demands honor and obedience from all, yet he himself humbled and degraded himself in obedience to all through his death on the cross. It's a circular kingdom, a circular economy in that sense. This you do not find in the kingdom of Lucifer, in the kingdom of Satan. Yes, in a certain sense, he does serve humanity in the sense that he gives humanity what they want in exchange for their loyalty to him. How many have made a pact with the devil and prospered and been successful as a result in this world? But the difference is that what Satan gives is death. It's ultimately not in the best interest of those to whom he gives. Where, by contrast, in God's circular economy, he gives life, he gives improvement, he gives the best, the blessing in his service to his creation. And we can see this contrast between the two kingdoms playing out in everyday life when, for example, a godless business person might engage in a type of business that is ultimately not good for other people, for the clientele of this business, but he will do it simply because people want it and are willing to pay for it, and it ultimately benefits him as a businessman. This is the self-seeking of the kingdom of Satan at work, whereas someone who is under the influence of God, someone who has morals, even if they do not acknowledge God outright, but one who understands through the things he sees in nature and through humility and an appreciation for what is right, one who has noble thoughts that are higher than just the thoughts of animals, ultimately one who fears God, will not engage in activities that are detrimental to others. He will not enable or facilitate the destruction of other people, even if that's what they apparently want and are willing to pay for it even. On the contrary, the economy of God is an economy of life. It bestows what is good. Okay, so the point I wanted to make here is that people who are or who have been looking for a good model for government, for social government, have ultimately, over the years, developed this idea of the social contract. And essentially, whether its proponents or the advancements they've made have come about as a result of a fear of God or as a result of just objective reasoning about the subject, ultimately, what has been shown by the development of social contract theory is that, first of all, we do need a law 
a common law that applies to all in a society. And when we talk about this, bear in mind that the world has sort of grown and become full to the point where you can't go anywhere that's not connected from everywhere else in the world anymore. Yeah, there might be some small little pockets here and there, but not really. The last unreached tribe in Senegal, I think it was, has already been encountered, and there are no unknown peoples in the world anymore. There are no wildernesses left that haven't been explored and accounted for. And so, and, and kind of on the other side of that token is that communications have expanded all over the globe to the point where the world has shrunk and become interconnected even at the same time that the population has expanded. So in end effect, we live in one global society. Language barriers have even been overcome now with the possibility of online translations. We literally live in a one-world society. And for that reason, social contract theory is all the more important right now because it applies in a global sense. We do need a global law that applies to all mankind. This is just a necessity born out of the reality of having a small world. And I believe that since God commanded us as a human species to fill the earth and dominate it, that it was his intention to bring us to this point specifically so that this judgment, this question of the nature of government, of universal government, would come to the forefront. Now, Christians have always believed and supported the idea of a universal government, the government of God a one-world government, so to speak. But on the other hand, Christians and many have long opposed the idea of a one-world government on the grounds that it can be evil. So the question here on this day of judgment, so to speak, is not a question of whether we should have a one-world government or not. It's a question as to the nature, the character, the laws of that one world government. And what we need to understand as human beings is that our role is to decide upon this government. We've had the experience, we've had the collective experience of history from the time of Adam and Eve, the fall from grace, from the development of the human thought as it is today. Ultimately, to decide this question, what kind of one world government do we want? Do we want a government patterned after the example of Lucifer and after his ideas? Or do we want a government patterned according to the government of heaven, the government of God? Do we want perfect freedom to do anything we want, as long as we don't get caught, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, as long as you know, you can step on others in order to climb higher yourself as long as they're okay with it. Is, it. is that the government we want? Do we want a government where propaganda, I mean, as long as you can convince people to be subservient or to, or to lift you up, that that's okay and they chose, you know, 
Is that the type of government we want, or do we want a type of government that does have restrictions, that does encourage and promote responsibility, not only for oneself, but for others, that promotes what is truly good, that is truly reciprocal as the kingdom of God is. You see, Satan's kingdom is a one-way kingdom. Everything ultimately leads to death in his kingdom. And this is the sort of dry, atheistic view that many, many in the world have today. It's exemplified by the scientists, especially like the late Stephen Hawking, for example, who talked about these bleak scenarios of, you know, in the atheistic mindset where humanity ultimately dies because the sun burns out and the temperature changes. You know, ultimately entropy in the grand scheme of things takes over and the human race will perish. In the atheistic mindset, nature is the lesson book, but not in the same way that it is for the children of God. They take the lessons of survival of the fittest, for example, of the strongest will rule over all, and they apply these principles of nature, they adopt these principles of nature, and they themselves become like the animals, trying to be the strongest and outdo the others. And ultimately, those who perish are regarded as being inferior, otherwise they wouldn't have perished. There is no moral judgment taken into consideration. It's just a cold theory that ultimately leads to death in every avenue over the course of time. It's a one-way trip, in other words. By contrast, the kingdom of God is different. It's a circular economy, as we mentioned. It gives rise to life, as we also see in nature, the cycle of death and life. But the Christian learns from nature in a different way than the atheist. The atheist regards nature as God because he knows nothing higher than nature. He knows nothing greater than nature. But the Christian knows who created nature. The Christian knows the one who created nature. And therefore, he takes the lessons of nature in the proper context. And this gives him an appreciation for life just as much as Jesus Christ gave his life for the salvation of others. The Christian's understanding of nature is not limited to nature. It is the lessons of the Creator that he reads through nature. And by way of contrast, an atheist might support depopulation on the basis of the fact that nature often gives rise to depopulation, whether it be through culling of a group of animals because of disease or because of predators or whatever it may be. This natural process might justify the idea of reduction of population in the mind of an atheist, whereas to a Christian, every human soul is valuable 
in the sight of the Creator. And for this reason, a Christian can never align with population reduction. God commanded us to fill the earth, and we are social creatures, and we have to find out what God's will is for us to develop into a community, a global community that can live and thrive in harmony with restrictions, with the restrictions of the law and with the restrictions of nature in recognition of the finite size of the earth. Very interesting times that we are living in. Okay, so I think the last two weeks might have been a little bit dry in terms of studying social contract theory, but I wanted in this episode to just kind of set the context and and bring this all into perspective and to show that the development of social contract theory is very important in connection with God's plan for mankind. And I actually didn't get to start on some of the concepts that I wanted to introduce in this episode, but let me just touch on some of the points that I wanted to make. Um, We talked about how the kingdom of God is developing. Not that there was ever anything wrong with it, but it is developing. In the beginning, it was very, we could say, dictatorial in the sense that God is like a benevolent dictator. And, And this was even reflected in sort of the early kingdoms of Israel and how the government of God's people worked in that sense. But the challenges, the difficulties with a kingdom were always evident, and that's the fact that if the king does not follow the ways of God, then the nation is really in trouble. And then we saw a new phase in the development of human understanding of government with the advent of Jesus Christ. He came as the king of kings. He came as the perfect king for the children of Israel, a king who always did the will of God. But in the wake of his death, what actually came out of that was a distribution of the kingly power. Jesus Christ himself didn't exercise the power of a king. He didn't come as that benevolent dictator, but rather he came to empower the weak and to ultimately transmit the authority over the kingdom of God from himself to those who believed in him and Christians believe as a result that they are princes or kings in the kingdom of God themselves. This is the teaching of the New Testament. And this is a different model of human government. And in social contract theory, this is reflected in the understanding that all power should not be invested in a single person, in the king, but that it should be distributed to a body of kings, so to speak, which is generally understood as parliament or congress or some kind of elected body of leaders. And furthermore, the idea, which again comes from the Christian concept that all believers in Christ are on an equal footing, so to speak, have equal access to Christ through prayer and through a study of his word with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, which is given to all believers. This concept 
carries over into our understanding of democracy, and particularly that the will of the people as a whole should come together for the governing of the entire body. This, unfortunately, though, has not been perfectly implemented, and for good reasons, that it was not always possible or practical for all people to contribute their direct input into the affairs of government for a variety of valid reasons. But the theorists recognized that the ideal implementation of the social contract would be such that everyone comes together to participate in the affairs of government. And so I just want to bring this all together to emphasize that the government of God, the government of heaven, is a government in which the people reign together with God. And this is described in the book of Revelation, where the holy city is described in Revelation 22, 3 to 5, for example. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, in the city, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Notice both on the one hand that his servants shall serve him, but also they shall reign forever and ever. Again, it's this circular economy, this circular government in which God reigns, but also the people reign. They reign through the light given by God, and God reigns through the service rendered by his people. God reigns and serves. He reigns, but he also gives light and life. And the people reign, but also serve. It's a cooperation. It's a unification. It's a reconciliation between God and man, but also God and all the universe, all the created beings. This is the nature of the kingdom of heaven, and it is a self-sustaining, a circular kingdom, unlike the kingdom of Lucifer that ultimately leads one way to death. Now, I can't close this message without mentioning something about Bitcoin, and indeed, this is a very significant point, and that's that the existing financial system is a one-way system. It's a system that takes from everyone and funnels wealth into the hands of the, I don't want to say the wealthy, but into the hands of the powerful, those who are not just wealthy, but in control of the systems of wealth in this world. There's nothing wrong with wealth or being wealthy. The problem is that the financial system favors and gives power to those who are already strong in the system and have control in the system. It's this crony capitalism that people speak of. In contrast, Bitcoin is a financial system that follows the model of the kingdom of God in that it has rules, it has a law that all must follow, but it's opt-in, 
You're not obliged to participate in Bitcoin, but when you do, you must abide by the rules, which are enforced by the system. It's a system where the participants rule through their operating nodes and where there is no favoritism. There's no discrimination. Incidentally, I want to mention that in the existing fiat financial system, in the existing worldly systems, there is discrimination. And that discrimination comes through KYC, know your customer. That's this process that everyone must go through when signing up for any kind of financial service. You have to identify yourself. And in so doing, you open yourself to discrimination by the system. And it's done in such an impersonal way and without you having the opportunity or even the right to communicate with those who are making the decisions of approval so that you cannot even confront the discrimination head on. Just to put an example, if you are denied access to a service because of your KYC paperwork, they don't give you a reason and therefore you cannot come back and say that it was a matter of discrimination. But in fact, it was. The very fact that you were rejected indicates that it was discrimination. You just don't know on what basis. And so it's a very unjust, a very opaque system. And Bitcoin is in contrast to that. It does not discriminate anyone. You do not need approval in order to use Bitcoin. And, well, you can listen to my other episodes to understand more how Bitcoin aligns with the kingdom of God. But just to conclude this topic, Bitcoin is a social contract and it is one which fulfills all of the ideals that the social contract theorists have worked out over the years. And ultimately, it is a reflection of the kingdom of God as it has developed from the beginning, with God as the benevolent dictator, so to speak, all the way through the coming of Jesus and the distribution, if you will, of the authority of the kingdom to the church and the future reigning of the redeemed in the kingdom of God. That's all reflected in the design and operation of Bitcoin here and now. And so I believe that our choice between governments, our choice in how the new world is going to be shaped is not a question of whether we adopt some kind of a worldwide system. Bitcoin is a worldwide system and the law of God is also universal. That's not the question. The question is which universal system we will adopt. And I submit to you that here Right now, the issue facing the world is the question of whether to continue to empower Lucifer's system by supporting the existing financial system or whether to move completely into the Bitcoin world, the no KYC Bitcoin world, which reflects our desire for the kingdom of God and our desire to live by the principles of his kingdom even here on earth, as long as we are here. That has been the premise of this podcast from the beginning, and 
after talking about social contract theory in the last two episodes, I just wanted to kind of tie that all together and show why that subject is so important and relevant to the overall context of Bitcoin and Christianity in terms of what God is doing right now as we face the day of judgment. So I hope this episode wasn't too tedious, but if you made it this far, then I hope that you have valued this overall perspective and that you will continue to make steps in the right direction toward implementing the principles of God's kingdom in your own life. So God bless you and have a great week. Bye-bye.